You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great, Maggie. Better than the stock market. I was just going to say, both of us are doing better than the markets. What a hot mess today. I mean, really kind of falling apart here at the end of the day, if you're looking at equities. Um, And we were just sort of chatting as we came to air um, this isn't less an equity story. It's really a it seems a bond story. Uh, you know, first of all, let's just go through the numbers for those who who maybe are not staring at your screen. Um, we saw yields moving up again. The 10 year at last check in, in the two nine hands. I don't think we did breach above three. Um, but if not, we got awfully close. Um, the Fed, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell speaking live today just a couple hours ago, saying that essentially a 50 basis point hike, certainly on the table in May, which I think most people think, but then also kind of adding some color, right? Saying the Fed should sort of front load whatever policy changes were needed. We saw a big market reaction after that, more pressure on bonds. Stocks did a big U-turn. There was a rally in the beginning of the day, you know, looking at earnings and some better than expected earnings, but that just fell apart at the end here. Um, you know, when we when we look across the markets, Jim, you know, what do you make of the action we saw today? Yeah, you know, it it is a disappointing day because it was only five hours ago that we were all excited about the Tesla earnings and the airlines that were talking about everybody's going to go out and buy an airline ticket and the economy's going to reopen. To have such a big reversal on good news is really, uh, it's almost a bigger surprise what happened today than you could argue what happened yesterday, because yesterday we were coming off the bad, the back of the bad news from Netflix, and yeah. the market rallied on that. And today it, it went down even more on the good news um, that we've seen from earnings. So <clears throat> you have to look for another catalyst. And I agree that the other catalyst has been this relentless move in interest rates. I mean, maybe one or two days you'll get of a counter trend, and that's all you'll get. And especially on the front end of the curve, we went over 2.7 percent on the ten on the two-year note today. Just for perspective, January 1st, four and a half months ago, we were at 70 basis points, less than one percent. Now we're at 2.7. So this has been a monstrous move that we've seen in rates, and it's showing no signs of slowing down. And the Federal Reserve Chairman is talking about front-loading interest rates hikes. The market is pricing in more front-loaded hikes uh, as well. And I think that the bond market is finally, the stock market is finally noticing the bond market. So does it feel like the market is getting close to appropriately pricing in Fed policy? Or do we still have a lot of ground to cover here, Jim? Because it's been, a, as you point out, and I, I think we just need to underscore that, it's been a really rapid move. You don't usually see bonds moving like this. Right. It, it, on that last point first, if you look at the total return statistics in the bond market, and that is you take the coupon that you earn plus the change in the price, <clears throat> this is the worst bond market in the history of statistics. 
This is worse than 79 or 80 or 81. The global aggregate index, which covers 28,000 bonds, is down 10% for the year. It's only the middle of April. That is a monstrous move for the bond market to be down 10%. And in four months, it's even demonstrous times three. Uh, the, the, the domestic aggregate index, which is 12,000 bonds, which goes back to 1973, this is the worst start to a year ever. The 30-year bond is down 35% from its all-time high of two years ago. I can go on and on that these numbers are horrifically bad in, in the bond market. So on your last point, yeah, the bond market's moves have been just unprecedented. And there's a worry that when you see bond markets move like this, they usually end when something breaks. Mm. I know that it's a fancy thing to say, well, the bond market's oversold. I'm going to predict that there's going to be a big rally in the other direction. Okay, that's true. Eventually, there will be. There always is. But when does it end? It doesn't just pick some random Thursday and ends. When you get these record-type moves, it ends when it breaks something. Yeah. It ends like you did in 87. It broke the stock market in 87. You know, stock market kept rallying. The 30-year went to 10%. Nobody cared. Then all of a sudden, they cared in a big way. It ends like it did in 94. The Fed kept raising rates and rates kept going up. Kidder Peabody went bankrupt. Orange County went bankrupt. We had the tequila crisis where the Mexican peso uh, got a massive devaluation as well, too. Ends like it did in 2006. The Fed raised rates 17 times in 17 meetings. It broke the housing market, and that mm. was a precursor to the financial crisis. So when you get a move like this in the bond market, it just end, it ends when it breaks something. Now, I know when I say breaks something, everybody goes, oh, so the stock market's going to crash. It doesn't have to be the stock market. It could be like 94 when you had a brokerage firm fail, or it could be like 2019 when the Fed raised rates then and you had the repo crisis. It could be the stock market. It could be the housing market. It could be something we don't anticipate. But I think that when we look at this bond move, when it's all over with, wherever it ends, and it rallies back the other way, we're going to say, and bonds rose to this level, and then this happened, and then the markets, and then yields started to fall. And it's that, and this happened, I don't think has occurred yet. So that means that we're probably going to see even higher interest rates as we move forward from here. And that's that's the worry, isn't it? And, and you know, yeah. So this is why we love having folks like you on, Jim, because you need that span of history to look back and see what's happened before and recognize the fact that we don't know where it's going to be. Just just when you talk about that last point about higher interest rates, it's because until the thing breaks, you're not going to get a response from officials. Right. So while it's almost like a coiled spring, right, while the trouble is brewing and the pressure is building things on the surface look like they justify the, the the path that officials, whether you're talking about central bank officials, by the way, or on the fiscal side, you know, uh, world leaders, whatever path they're on, we can't see the stress yet, but your instinct and your experience tells you it's there. Yes, it, you know, and it might not be apparent the day that interest rates peak. Interest rates peaked in this, you know, in this, in the middle of 2006, the Case-Shiller home price index peaked in September of 2006. And then, but the damage was done, especially because everybody had adjustable rate mortgages back then, and they raised the front end of the yield curve, the funds rate from one to five and a half percent. And that was the damage as all these adjustable rate mortgages started to get adjusted higher. So it may not be something as obvious. It's, it's nice and it's obvious, 
if the market keeps, if rates go up and the stock market breaks, because then you could point to a minute, you know, right there is where it broke. Mm -hmm. But it might be something that's a little bit more nebulous and maybe it already is breaking or it has broken and we just don't know it yet. But what I am trying to say is it would be wholly out of character to say, here is one of the biggest moves in the bond market's history. One random Thursday it ended and it rallied back the other way and nothing came of it. Right. Almost every time the bond market has a big move of this magnitude, something comes of it. And that's really the part we have to figure out. And sometimes it's not obvious, but something will come of it. That's what I think will be marking the end of such a move. And that's why I think you're all looking for for signs of those strains, right? We're all like I ask repeatedly, what does liquidity look like? Are mark, markets functioning? Um, you know, d does everything seem like it's running smoothly? Are we hearing about anyone in trouble? And so far, we're not. But I think a lot of people or a lot of longtime market watchers share your concern that the speed of these moves and the complexity of them layered on top of geopolitical problems that we're seeing um, create a very, very dangerous situation. So can I can I just throw in there and say, yeah. if there is another warning sign out there, look at the bank stocks since their peak in mid-January, they were down. I didn't see what they did today, but they were down through Tuesday, 20%. They sold off 20% in an environment of rising rates, which is supposed to be good for banks, in an environment where the yield curve finally started to steepen out, at least until a couple of days ago, which was supposed to be good for banks. And the earnings reports weren't terrible for the bank market, but the bank index was just getting drilled and drilled and drilled. And I have suggested, like on Twitter, there's a signal here that bank investors are uncomfortable with what they're seeing out there. And I think what they're uncomfortable, what they're seeing is banks own a lot of treasuries. They own a lot of bonds. They own them with borrowed money on leverage and they have to mark to market. And they see these horrific moves in the marketplace right now. And yeah, I know some people say, well, they can move them from their available sale to their trading account or vice versa. You, you can't move $30 trillion worth of bonds like that. Uh, you can move some bonds like that. But if the bond market continues to put up these kind of numbers, I understand why bank investors are starting to notice this and just killing the bank stocks as well, too. Well, that's really important for that sector because, you know, in a different environment <laughs> or from a different playbook, you'd say rising rate environment should be good for banks, should be that, that yes. too much risk around the treasuries. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I, 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 I want to dive into another aspect of treasuries I know you're watching. Before that, though, let's, let's square up with the Fed. Uh, is the market doing the work of the Fed? We, we had economic numbers out today. U.S. jobless claims fell. Labor market still looks tight. Mortgage rates were up, though. The Philly Fed continued to expand, but the rate of activity down. Futures expectations down. What's leading here? And is the bond market already doing some of the work of the Fed or or no? 
It, I'll answer it by saying it's trying to, but not yet. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the Fed fund futures contracts, or if you look at the euro dollar futures contracts, there are 14 rate hikes priced in now between now and the middle of 23, 14. And that means that the funds rate goes to three and a half to three and three quarters. Not only that, today, earlier today, we don't have 50 basis points priced in for May. We have a 58% chance of 75 in June. That's better than 50% chance of 75. It's only 58. 100% chance of 50 in June. And then another 70% chance of a third 50 basis point after 75 in July. So the market's pricing in 50, 75, 50, and 14 rate hikes in total. Now, you go and look at the Bank of America survey of fund managers. Now, these fund managers that they survey are not Fed fund futures traders. They're not Eurodollar traders. They think in total, as of last week, seven rate hikes. They think 40% of them think that inflation is transitory, meaning the Fed doesn't have to do anything. Inflation will go away by itself. The market, the, the front end of the market that is tied to the Fed is trying to tell you this Fed is going to be very aggressive, and they are going to raise rates a lot. Bill Dudley wrote that op-ed two weeks ago in Bloomberg, and it said, if the stock market doesn't go down, the Fed has to lower it, arguing the policy yeah. of the Fed is to the policy of the Fed is to lower the stock market. Equity traders, nah, they don't mean it. They yeah. don't mean it. They're, you know, inflation's going to go away by itself. The Fed is just doing some rate hikes for show. They'll do 50 for show. And when it goes away, they can stop and we could go back to 5,000. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that inflation is truly transitory, that makes sense. But if they're wrong, then there's a lot more that the markets have to price in. We only have seven rate hikes priced in. The market's trying to tell you there's seven more you got to price in to this market. And that's really... This is unusual. Usually, if I said, what does the Bank of America fund manager survey say? And what did the Fed fund futures market say? Almost all the time, it's the same thing. Mm. But now it's not. And it really comes down to this whole idea around inflation. If you believe it's permanent or, tra or persistent, that's the word I like to use, yeah. then the Fed's got to do something about it. That means hit demand. That means lower the stock market. That's what Dudley meant reverse wealth effect to lower demand to get people to stop buying stuff to bring down inflation. If you believe it's transitory, then they don't have to do anything. And that is really the question. So the Fed does not believe it's transitory, I think. The Fed is being serious. The Fed is looking at the Fed fund futures going, okay, 14 rate hikes, Jim Bullard. Yeah, look, the market is pricing in what we want to do. Yes, but equity traders are not. They don't believe you're going to ultimately do that. And that's where the, the rub is in this market. Are you ready for a 3.5% funds rate by the middle of next year and 50, 50, and maybe 75 in the next few months? I don't think these markets have that priced in right now. And if that becomes a reality, then we're going to have more bumpy roads ahead. Yeah. And I, and I believe Dudley was not only saying they've got to break something, but it's better they break it sooner rather than later so they can get that their- That was his op-ed this week. Yeah, He said a, a recession now- is going to be less painful than a recession later. Hence, 
Jay, get about the job of butchering the economy. And yet, you know, ask people this morning when the S&P was up 50 points. Oh, yeah, let's buy more stocks. Yeah. And well, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive for you. people to think that the Fed would want to slow the economy. You know, this isn't a situation we've been in. We've seen them as supportive most of the time and coming to the rescue. So um, economy, stock market, either one. But to, to, to try to be slowing that's, purposefully that's feels exactly different. The, that's exactly the point. I get it. When you when I talk to equity managers, no, no, no. The Fed, every time things get messy, every time stock markets get wobbly, the Fed cuts rates, they print, they, 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 they underpin it. Yes, you're right. That's exactly what they've done for 13 years. But now we've got eight and a half percent inflation. Mm. That's the game changer. And they yeah. go, no, no, it's it's transitory. Okay. If you're right and it's transitory, then it'll work out. But more and more, the evidence is suggesting that it's not as transitory as people want to suggest. Let me give you one statistic about not being transitory. The March CPI, core CPI, came in at 0.3 when the estimates were 0.5. That was last week. The big thing that caused core CPI to undershoot was this giant fall in used car prices, down 3.8%, the most in 50 years. Car Gurus has a used car index that is updated daily. It has spun around from its late March low back to the all-time high. So you've had a gigantic rise, according to car gurus, in used car prices in the month of April. So if that gets translated into the measures that the, the BLS uses for CPI, which I think it will, maybe if it's not in April, definitely in May, that whole thing about, oh, good, car prices are coming, used car prices are coming down. This is it. We've got peak inflation. Be careful now. That could reverse right back up. In, in April's number or and or in May's number. So, yeah, I get the argument about peak inflation might be now, and maybe that's right, and I'm not against that idea. But I also think that what you're going to find is we're going to have peak inflation, and that inflation rate's going to, you know, it's going to be 7.5% in six months. Oh, yeah, right. it was we were right. It peaked at that level, yeah. yeah. Yes, it's sustained. Yeah, you were right, we we're at 8.5%. In March, but we're only at seven and a half percent at the end of the summer. What's the Fed got to do? Fourteen rate hikes. That's yeah. what the Fed has to do. If it gets down to three, then we could talk about less rate hikes. But that's going to be the big problem. And it's I think it's the problem that in, a lot of investors are <clears throat> grappling with. Right. We had interesting conversations. Steve Clapham interviewed James Davolo's portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics, and they talked about what do you do in this kind of environment that we really haven't found ourselves in lately? Let's listen to a clip from that. Now, I mean, you probably, as much as anybody, have thought about what will be the impact of inflation on people's portfolios. What are the what are the stocks that you think people shouldn't hold? So the anti-inflation, anti-your fund. What's the opposite? What what are the things that people should be examining and worrying about if they've gotten a portfolio? What has worked best over the past 40 years, basically ultra, I call it equity duration. So little to no cash flow generation today, where the theoretical pot of gold might be 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And the reason is that even if interest rates don't rise, your opportunity cost is going to rise by virtue of inflation. And so that's why I think you've seen so much pressure on the Goldman Sachs profitless tech index, which is, I think it's down 40, 50, maybe even 60% off its peak. And you know, there's still probably a lot of room for those to fall if the long end of the interest rate curve goes up, but also if people start embedding higher equity risk premiums by virtue of inflation. So 
companies that are not actually generating free cash flow, and there's probably not a viable path to generating free cash flow for decades. And I would argue certain technology stalwarts today might not even have been able to succeed if they were launched in today's environment. So just to throw one out with Netflix, would the market have been willing to fund profitless revenue growth for decades with this implicit promise of one day possibly having free cash flow today the way that it did 20 years ago? I would argue absolutely not. And if they couldn't access effectively free cost of equity throughout that whole period, what would that company have looked like without all the capital to invest in the infrastructure and the content? So the entrepreneurial environment is probably going to be very different as well. And that full interview is available for Essential Plus and Pro members on the website. Interesting thoughts there, Jim. And we, we have a question kind of related to that from Adam um, from the RV site. Jim, if you had to invest new money for a client today, where would you start putting capital to work? This made me laugh out loud. I hear that trade is crowded, regardless of what that trade may be. Uh, so wh what are right. your thoughts on what, what, what you just heard there? Yeah, so two things on, on the question. Where would you put money? That is the most commonly asked question. And I interpret that question as a macro guy, mm -hmm. um, just to mean there's U.S. stocks, there's international stocks, emerging stocks, there's U.S. bonds, international bonds, emerging bonds. Which one of those asset classes is going to go up? The first quarter of this year, none of them went up. The best performer was actually the S&P 500 and down 4.6%. The last time none of them went up for a quarter was 1994, 28 years ago. And the last time that the worst, the best performer was down 4% was 1980, 42 years ago. So yeah, I get, everybody asked that question. One of these categories is gonna be up 20%, which one? And if you try and answer the question by saying none, well, no, that's not the case. Last year, the S&P was up 29%. There's always one of them that's up, not, when you have inflation. That is a real problem when you have inflation. And so where would I put money to work? If you're looking for an asset class that is going to rally, there isn't one. Now, if you wanna go into the alternative world and say maybe commodities or maybe um, <clears throat> something in, the, uh, in a LLP, a, a master limited partnership in oil and gas or an individual stock, that's outside of my purview to go down to individual securities. But at an asset level basis, there isn't one. And you know, in April, they're all down again too. The yeah. S&P's down, the Russell's down, international stocks are down, every bond market measure you have is down. They're all losing you money. And I know this is hard because up in, for the last 28 years, something has always gone up, but now nothing is going up. Yeah, and it's and, and and it's frustrating. Uh, Jim, I want to get to this question. It's a great one. I know you've been looking at this. We've been covering it uh, a lot to make sure that people are aware of the risks on the dashboard. And this is a big one. This one from Mark, asking about the Bank of Japan. It, Bank of Japan is doing unlimited buying to to pin that their tenure. Who would want to hold the yen and why? In other words, why doesn't it collapse? Talk to us about what you're watching and how important Japan is and why we all need to pay attention. Well, the second part again first, it is collapsing. It is down 12% in the last 35 days. That is Which one is of the incredible. Largest, yes, that is one of the largest moves in a generation. That is a monstrous move. You know what that means is keep in mind, 
the, the Japanese economy is largely an import economy, right? They import everything. Everything now from what you buy in the store all the way to what Toyota needs to make cars is now 12% more expensive in the last month. That is a huge shock to the Japanese economy. So to your last question first, the currency is collapsing. And now why is the currency collapsing? Because the Bank of Japan has got what's called yield curve control. They try to target the 10-year note at zero, plus or minus 25 basis points. Well, the yield is at plus 25 basis points right on the nose. The Bank of Japan has come out and said that they will print unlimited money to prevent the yield from going above 25 basis points. And for the last two days, it's been stuck at 25 basis points. Now, what that means is that if you don't let the Japanese interest rate go up and German and U.S. and British and French rates keep going higher and higher, the spread widens out. That means that Japanese currency is relatively more unattractive because it's not paying you the proper interest rate. So people are selling the currency. So this trying to force their interest rate to not go above 25 basis points is killing their currency and it's hurting every and it's hurting everybody in the country because they got to pay higher prices. The problem is the Japanese, the BOJ, the Ministry of Finance, they can either control the price of their bonds, not let them go above 25 basis points, or they can control their currency. They can't do both. And so all this talk about them intervening in the market, it won't work if they want to try and intervene in the, in the currency market, prop up the yen, and still hold their current interest rate at 25 basis points. You want to stop the yen from declining? Let your interest rates go to half a percent is what you'd have to do. Just give up on yield curve control. But the Bank of Japan, again yesterday, reiterated that their policy is to not let get let go of yield curve control. So they're in a tough spot. And yeah. the Japanese economy is going to pay a heavy, heavy price unless world interest rates come down and close that spread. And then that would take the heat off of the Japanese yen. But again, that doesn't that's look what like the short term and the way this thing and, is moving. This is a pitched battle day to day. Right, right. And now it doesn't look like short term, as I said earlier, most likely need something to break in order to bring those rates down. And you're right. This is a pitched battle because the other thing I'll say about that is the greatest trade on the planet right now is buy the Japanese JGB because you're going to buy it at a certain level. And the Japanese, the Bank of Japan said that they will use unlimited money to make sure it doesn't go one tick lower. You could buy it on 100% leverage. And when it goes up, you can make a lot of money. Why isn't anybody doing that trade? Because there's a big confidence problem with the Bank of Japan. They, they say they're going to do this, but we don't believe that they can actually pull it off. Yeah, well, so anytime, that's why anytime the market's gone against that kind of bet, we've seen it before, right? Yeah, it's very hard to contain those market forces for that long. So which happens, Jim? What do you think they let go of first? If they can't do both, what, which goes? I think that they're going to have to let yield curve control go because from a political standpoint, every person in Japan is going to say, I'm paying high prices because we have to import oil, we have to import food, we have to import the raw materials to build Toyota cars. 
and they are getting more expensive every single minute because their currency is going. Isn't down. that what they wanted though? Didn't they've been stuck in a deflationary spiral? Didn't they want higher prices, higher inflation, or is it just not this way? Yes, they do want it, but not twelve percent in thirty days. <laughs> it's always about the, the magnitude of, of the change that matters. Yeah. Right. And that is a that is problematic, the magnitude of the change, because it could bring it puts stresses on your banking system. It puts stresses on finances. It puts stresses on things that you don't think of. It is the magnitude of the change. So ultimately, I think it might be the yield curve control that they're going to have to let go. Let your interest rates rise. Let that spread with the rest of the world narrow. That will naturally bring your currency back up. And what are the implications for Treasury should that happen, though? Because there is a link and a risk here, isn't there? Right. The largest country owner of Treasuries is Japan. Everybody thinks it's China, but it's actually Japan. They own 1.3 trillion, where China owns 1.1. If interest rates in Japan do something they haven't done in a decade plus, they actually go up and they actually start giving you a real yield. The Japanese might say, you know, what do we do with our money? Well, we could keep it here because we're starting to get a yield here for the first time ever, as opposed to going and putting it in U.S. treasuries. And all of a sudden, and all this stuff tends to happen at the same time. At a time when the Fed's going to do QT, you've lost the buyer of the Fed and you've got a high inflation and you're losing buyers of the private sector. Why would I own bonds in an 8 percent inflation environment? Then you turn and you say, who's our largest country trader? Japan. Oh, they might leave too. And this all piles on to why interest rates have been in this relentless rise higher and higher. And it probably won't stop until something forces it to stop. We break something. Mm. Which I is, wish which I was I, more cheery. Yeah, I know. But this is, a, this is important for us to, to have in mind. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We're almost out of time, but I do want to bring up this question. It's come up a couple of times and, you know, we were talking about assets. Nothing looks good. Where do you put your money? It's hard. Everything was down two months in a row. And, you know, I got a couple of questions about digital assets. Jimmy asking from the RV site, is crypto's correlation to NASDAQ breaking down here? Um, you know, what about the the two, uh, you know, do, does it look attractive? Is that an alternative? Finally, are they going to decouple? What do you think, Jim? Or is it well, risk asset, was, danger, danger? Yes, it is a risk asset, danger, danger. Today was a real disappointment because in the last couple of hours, as the stock market fell apart after Powell's comments about getting ultra tight, so did cryptos. They, they turned right around and they just went straight down. I've been of the opinion that cryptos are not a risk asset on the traditional financial curve, that they're just a levered version of the ARK funds that there's something different than that. They're zero correlated to the NASDAQ, but we still trade it as if it is highly correlated. And again, why is that? I think it's all about institutional adoption. Institution opens a Coinbase account, buys some Bitcoin, and believe me, it's no more complicated than that. And then they say, okay, well, how do we decide what we're gonna do with this? Turn to the technology guy. You're now our crypto guy. Tell us when to buy and sell this stuff. <laughs> and he views it like a technology stock. 
And that's why it seems to you have a 90% correlation with the ARC funds is yeah. what it is. Is it right? No, it is, but, it, but it is the environment we're in. And as much as I want, Jimmy, I wanted as much as you to say the correlation broke. What I mean by break is I just want it to go to zero, you know, with the, with the traditional markets. It hasn't yet. And it's because of I still think we all still look at it as a version of the ARC funds. Yeah. Interesting. It's not down that much, though, if you look across some of the, you know, some days we'd see it, you know, rock down six, seven percent right in line. Much milder moves now, which is interesting and, and something that we'll have to watch. I want to squeeze but one the directionally, more. Directionally, it's still this, it's yeah. still working the same way. And let's say, yeah. Today was late. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. Overnight as, as the, the deterioration uh, uh, stacks up. I want to squeeze one more question in. And that is coming um from Tim, uh, and this is this is really a broad one, and I think it you know wraps it back up to what do we do here at this juncture? Tim asking March lows on the table, HYG junk bonds much lower. Cheers, love your work and all you put out to the regular investor. Uh, you know, sub thirty eight hundred on the S and P. Just how bad do you think it's going to get here, Jim? How worried are you? Uh, yeah, I you know, I guess the really the question is is about resiliency. I would like to think that we're closer to having something break than not. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like, why is that such a positive thing? Because if I believe my friends that say, no, the U.S. economy is doing very well and it's in a very good position, I'm like, oh, no, now you're talking, we're going to have to take interest rates up another 100 basis points in order to have it break. I, I think we're getting close to it, but it's going to be heralding days before we get there. Remember that in most moves in the market, um, you know, uh, there's a there's a famous line, uh, you know, that, you know, did I ever tell you about the time that I bought the market three days before the low? And people say, yeah, well, that was a very good move. And you go, no, I bought it three days before the low, which means half the move still came in the next three days. And that's typically what happens with the move. So when I say we might be close, that might be in time, but in price, we might not be close right now. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, you get that final and then everybody says, that's it. I'm done with the market. Um, you know, and we'll see because, you know, you could have said that we're within a couple of days of the low in Netflix and you bought it on Tuesday. Yeah. You still might be right, but you won't like how that trade worked out for you. Yeah, that's a great point. Price ma- price matters an awful lot here, especially with the speed uh, you know, in which things are happening. Uh, Jim, fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much for, I think, really identifying the risks out there. It sounds like a time everyone has to be really nimble and really defensive. So appreciate you as always. And thanks thank to you. all of you, as usual, for the great questions. We love it. Keep them coming. I'll be back again tomorrow with Ralph Powell. So be sure to get those questions ready and tune in. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.